0: For the last several weeks, we've taken a very different approach to the way we normally explore the Bible. Generally, and and that will continue soon, we select a book of the Bible and we work our way through it one section, one unit, one story, one paragraph at a time. Uh, But as summer approached, just in hearing so many conversations and personally answering so many questions about life and scripture and people finding themselves in difficult situations. I invited your questions, I invited your hardest questions, promising that I would give you as best I could honest answers from Scripture. It's taken a little longer, and I appreciate your patience as we work through the Bible because this is, this is what you could call if you're, if you're into the terminology and you've got to, you're trying to figure out different approaches to understanding what God says, this, you could call this doctrinal teaching. In other words, we're looking at a topic and trying to find out, not from a single section of the Bible, but from all across Scripture, what does God say about this? Because God, who made life and knows us deeply, He knows us perfectly, He knows us better than we could ever know ourselves, is the creator of our reality, and He knows all about it. And we are continually in a search to align our lives with truth, And today, we're going to talk about something that the culture, for a lot of reasons I won't go into, has made almost a laughable proposition. Today, we're going to talk about sin. And I say, we're going to talk about sin. What's your visceral reaction? You hear a pastor say that, and what do you think? talking about me, somebody said, yeah, me too. (laughs) I'm preaching about something I know quite well today. A lot of people say, well, God's holiness, God's mercy, many others in our culture will say, oh boy, here comes the self-righteousness, here comes the judgment. Somebody's written a list down of stuff they don't like, and they're going to tell me why those things are wrong. Let me tell you just right up front, I speak today about sin as a sinful man, forgiven, righteous, but not because of me, but because of Jesus. More on that in a minute. If we ever come across as self-righteous, we've either forgotten or never really understood the good news that God's Word has to tell us. But this topic about sin, the specific question, there's a lot of, it takes a lot of different shapes, but it sounds a little bit like this. People say sin is sin, right? All sins are sort of the same. Have you heard this? They move quickly from we're all sinners to something a little bit different, that sin is sin. And many Christians believe this. And when something terrible happens in the news, when a Christian leader falls, some will quickly say, we have no right to judge this situation because, after all, we are sinners ourselves. And someone will quote Jesus and say, let he who is without sin do what? Cast the first stone. I'd like to talk to you today very specifically about a seemingly unimportant question, but hopefully by the time I work my way through it, you'll see how practical it is. And the intent of this is to equip you biblically so that you will be more biblically and morally discerning. In other words, that you will go through, go out into a world and examine your own heart in a culture that is shot through with sin, that is increasingly reluctant to call anything wrong unless the other side believes it or does it. It's tearing us apart as a country, so let's do the hard work of talking about sin. It sounds something like sin is sin, right? And Christians, people who read the Bible, have come to believe that because, I think, of one specific verse. It's found in James chapter 2, verse 10. I'd like you to read it with me. It says in the English Standard Translation of 2011, and I'll tell you why I'm being that specific in a moment. Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, this is what's in your Bible, this is what in in my Bible this morning. Here's Here's what the Word of God says in James 2 verse 10. And the context is this, James is telling Christians in his day in first century Christianity not to play favorites with the poor and the rich when they come into the church. Have you ever been put off by a church that very obviously favored people who had money? You ever had a pastor look past you because you didn't have much, and you can tell he's looking over your shoulder? Somebody came in with a Rolex, and he's like, hey, God bless you, good to meet you, I got to go talk to that guy. Have you seen this? It happens. It started as soon as there were Christians. And the context is to not be preferential, to not play favorites, to not discriminate against the poor because they're poor, and to not to treat the rich any better simply because they're rich. And in talking to them about their favoritism, James says, read it with me, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And many translations say has become guilty of all of it. And I think that's where the misunderstanding comes. Whoever keeps the whole law, in other words, everyone who does everything that God has said, Everyone that keeps all of God's moral instructions but fails in a single point has become accountable for all of it. Part of the series is to teach you to read the Bible, and just remember these three words. Context is king. If you pull a phrase or a word out of a document, you can make it prove practically anything. That's true in any kind of document. It's especially true and abused in God's Word. Look at the context. In other words, look in the bigger reading, in the paragraph. Here it is. James said in verse 8, we're dialing back a little bit, James chapter 2, verse 8 says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. In other words, James is agreeing with Jesus. He's saying what Jesus said, the royal law, the greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, James says, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Transgressor is one who goes past a boundary, okay? who goes beyond the limits that have been established for him. If you've ever walked into a place where you were forbidden, that was a transgression. Now listen to James. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See his point? Now, from what you just read, is James saying, if you commit adultery, you're also a murderer? No. He's saying, don't comfort yourself by keeping some of God's rules. If you break any one of those rules, you are guilty before him. Think of it this way. If I took a hammer and went to the big, beautiful bay window at your home, hopefully you have a beautiful home with the bay window, okay? If you don't, just indulge the example. And I took a very small hammer and very lightly hit in the top right corner of your beautiful bay window. And you came out and protested and you said, why are you breaking my window? And I said, listen, I hit it very lightly and I just broke the top right-hand corner. Do you feel any better about that situation? How much of the window do you want replaced? All of it, right? Those of us who have raised athletic kids who play ball sometimes have to go check a window. And if there's a single crack in the window, that's our window. We just bought the whole thing. That's what James is saying here. And he's telling them on this very specific thing. The royal law of Scripture is, the great commandment is, to love God supremely and to love your neighbor as yourself. James says, if you do that, you're doing well. But if you're playing favorites, you've already broken the law, just as if you, in his example, If you commit adultery but don't murder, you shouldn't go home and feel perfectly free of being adulterous. You've committed adultery. Murder is a separate and a different thing, but you stand guilty before the judge. Does all of that make sense? So in other words, what the Bible tells us over and over again, all across its 1189 chapters, is this simple truth. We're all sinners. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, There's not a righteous man on earth who continually does what is good and who never sins. And one of the great harms in our culture is that we have made the word sin itself laughable. And one of the if you call someone a sinner, you're either a pious, self-righteous, out of touch, prude, or Some kind of moralistic person who wants to impose your will on others. Remember what the nature and the meaning of the word sin itself is in Scripture. There's many words to describe it. Transgressing is one of it. In other words, you go past a boundary that God has established. Sin literally means to miss the mark, that God has set a standard and you have come short of it. By that standard, everyone in our culture, if they understand what the Bible means by sin should readily agree that every person they've ever met, and if they're honest, if they're in touch with reality, if they're not broken psychiatrically, they themselves will admit that they themselves sin on a constant basis. We've just dumbed it down to this simple expression, nobody's perfect. Right? Oh, well, nobody's perfect. But people who want to deal righteously and who want to deal with the truth have to deal with reality as it is not as they hope it to be. So here's the real question. We're all sinners. That's true in Scripture, and life itself teaches you that. But are all sins the same? And let me just walk you through the Bible. This is the doctrinal piece. If you really love big, fancy church words, this is theology. Okay, we're studying the doctrine or the theology of sin, and we're asking a very specific question about sin. Are all sins the same? Well, it should be obvious if we think about it, if we reflect upon it, they're not. Some sins are worse than others. Listen to Jesus speaking to Pilate on the day of his judgment. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate has contemptuously spoken to Jesus and says, aren't you going to talk to me? Don't you know I have authority over your life? In other words, you better recognize, you better remember who you are, and you better remember who I am. And Jesus says to him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of what? A greater sin. Who is Jesus speaking of? Judas. In plain English, Pilate, you are doing a terrible thing. But the man who betrayed me, my own disciple, did something much worse. There's more. Some sins, the Bible explicitly says, will be judged more harshly than others. This is Jesus. He's done so much of His ministry. He has invested His life, His power, His tears, His energy, His prayers. He has done everything the Son of God can do to call Israel back to repentance. He's done most of His miracles in a few chosen cities. And the gospel says this, then He began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Repent is a simple biblical term that means a U-turn. When you repent, you are convicted that you were going the wrong way and you turn around and you head the right way. And Jesus is denouncing the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. That's the name of the town. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are foreign cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? There's cities here that we're not familiar with. It's long ago and far away. Jesus is saying and denouncing cities in His own nation, saying, Grief to you, I mourn for you, woe to you, because had I done for foreigners what I've done for you, they would have turned around and made these outward shows of tremendous repentance. Repentance. They would have dressed themselves in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they would have taken on a ceremonial appearance of being completely downcast. In our culture, we wear black to funerals because we want to portray sadness. You show up dressed like a peacock at a funeral, somebody's going to talk to you in the family. <laughs> Make sense? In the ancient world, when there was deep mourning and deep grief, every culture does this, it meant dressing in sackcloth and ashes. Now, here's the crucial part. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. It's a lot of different city names. Is this making sense? What's Jesus saying? God is going to call everyone to account. Because you saw much more of me and saw great works from me, you will be judged much more harshly. And the foreigners who hardly heard of me, the people who were not the object of my love and my efforts, who did not see me brokenhearted and angry and filled with compassion and moving through everything that life had ruined, they weren't privileged, they weren't blessed by any of that, so it'll be a whole lot better for them when judgment comes." And it's not just theoretical for me. Look at this. Christian teachers will be judged more strictly than Christians who do not teach. Now I'm talking about me. Because what I'm doing at this moment is teaching you the Bible. This is heavy. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Pray for me, will you? and I'm not even kidding. Somebody has to teach. But James says it shouldn't be many of you. You shouldn't be trivial. You shouldn't be lighthearted. You should, certainly should not be irreverent about teaching anyone else the Word of God because those who teach, and he includes himself, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And here's a verse that describes my life. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. What is characteristic of people who teach? We talk a lot. And if you talk a lot, guess what you'll do? You'll sin a lot. It's in Scripture. In many words, sin is not absent. That's what Proverbs says. And I can't tell you how many times I'm just just being truthful, and practical. I know this isn't the life of most of you, but I just want you to understand how this verse intersects, hits me. Too many times on Saturday, any day of the week, but I feel it especially on Saturday, I have to go around and make apologies to, especially to my wife and kids, because my mouth, which is continually moving, has gotten me in trouble again And when God deals with me, how that feels like is this. If I am so careless and stupid, thoughtless with my words, what on earth am I doing opening the Bible in front of other people and opening my mouth to tell them what it means? And if you have any self-awareness at all, you feel that weight. And James' point is, don't rush into teaching. If God has gifted you for teaching, embrace it. Love it. Do it. Many of you should be teaching and you're not. You should be teaching our children and our youth. If not from a podium, if not from a pulpit, you should be investing one-on-one in lives of others. You should be leading small groups because God has gifted and called you to do that. But understand, along with that high privilege, James warns, come a higher standard of accountability because the act of teaching requires you to speak, and James says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Sexual sin, the Bible warns, it's in his own category. Not all sins are the same and nothing like sexuality to show that. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Read the rest of it with me. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Got it? This is why the only biblical provision made for sexual temptation is to run from it. There is a time to run. And those of us who went to Bible college or seminary, we know that well because we were roommates or good friends with someone who decided in the face of temptation to quote Bible verses and sing little Christian songs and they got caught up. They were overtaken and they fell. Why is that? Because the, the biblical provision is when you are tempted to sexual immorality, get out of there. Run from that. Sometimes the only wise thing to do is to run. Did you know on 9-11, the people in the second tower had quite a while to save themselves? but a false announcement was made in the second tower that all was well and they should stay at their desks. Some managers chose to be good company men and women and kept their heads down and kept working. And many more could have been saved in those express elevators if they did what the majority did, sense that something disastrous was going on and decide, I'll get yelled at later, I'm getting out of here now. And they lived. Why? Because they fled. If an airliner is coming into your building, there is no strength, there is no weapon, there is no amount of physical fitness that can save you. The only way to live is to be as far away from that building as you possibly can. That's the urgency in Paul's warning here. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. That's why sexual immorality is so destructive. That's why I've dealt with people who have been, for instance, I've dealt with people who have been guilty of attempted murder. I knew and prayed for a young man who was run over deliberately by another kid driving a car. Why? Because he was messing with his girlfriend. I've dealt with people who are suicidal and comforted more than one family after someone has actually taken or tried to take their own life because of an attachment and a bond that they had with someone else who then turned away from them and started dating someone else or cheated on them in turn, and it just wrecks their whole life. Why? Because this great gift of sex that God has given to us, meant to be confined in a marriage between a man and a woman, when it spreads outside of its God-given design… Bring sin and all of its consequences, not outside the person, but into the person's own body, and the consequences are magnified and much greater. That's why it's important to distinguish that different sins have different consequences. Look at First John 5:16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That's as heavy as the Bible gets. Nobody can be entirely sure what John means by a sin that leads to death. We're not sure if he's talking about a very specific thing or a pattern of sin where God says, okay, enough is enough and acts in judgment. But John says, if you see someone in the family that is committing a sin that does not lead to death, pray for them. But there is another kind of sin that leads to death, and John says, I don't, I'm not even saying that you should pray for that. Can you see the difference between these categories of sin in Scripture? It's not true that all sin is equal. Now, let's be practical before we're done. There's great danger in knowing that all sins are not the same. Once you know this, once you understand this, and you know these verses and you understand that there really is a hierarchy of sins, and some things are worse than others, you open yourself up to a very dangerous game of comparison. The comparison game will make you self-righteous. And you'll say, well, I don't do that. I'm not denying that I sin, but I don't do that. Have you met this guy? Here's how practical this is. I've had more than one man when we were missionaries in Mexico. Admit to me that he was cheating on his wife, but say, but I don't beat her. (laughs) Are you expecting congratulations? (laughs) But that's real. There's a tremendous capacity for self-justification inside the human heart that is sinful itself. And once you understand that some sins are actually and quite literally worse than others… And if you just think about it, that should, should be obvious even without going through all this Scripture. Let's put it like this. If you hate this sermon and you're determined to sin against me to square the score, please lie about me instead of killing me. I don't want you to lie and slander me, but I'll put up with lies and slander far better than I'll endure murder. Of course, there are categories of sins, but when you play the comparison game, it will every single time make you self righteous. And I want you to hear a story that Jesus told to illustrate the point. Look with me in Luke chapter 18. Yes, the verses are on the screen to save time, but every once in a while, we're actually going to open our Bibles. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Everybody got it? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Every time that Jesus tells a parable, we're not told every single time what the point is. This time we are. It's that important. Jesus was dealing with people who trusted in themselves, he says. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and because they trusted in themselves, they treated others with contempt. If you've ever been treated with contempt by a Christian, you've met someone who forgot what the gospel was all about. A self-righteous Christian should be a contradiction in terms. We can't be self-righteous. All we can be is Christ-righteous. The only thing that speaks on our behalf is the right… righteousness of Jesus placed in our lives by the grace of God that put His Son on the cross. That's it. That's your only hope. And Jesus told a parable to illustrate that point. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Those sound different to you if you're familiar with what the way we normally use the word Pharisee in the 21st century. But in Jesus' day, the way the people would have heard it was this. The best guy in the world and the worst guy in the world both went up to pray. The Pharisee was serious about Scripture. He was serious about knowing God. The tax collector was a sellout who was collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Check this out. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. You like this guy? What's he doing? He's writing his own list and as long as I get to write the list, I can always win the game. He's saying, here's what I don't do, here's what I do, and I'm not anything like this man standing beside me. The tax collector was different. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, a sign of grief, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the end of the story. Here's the point. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Don't miss this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you want to be exalted by God, if you want to be righteous before God, if you want to be blessed by God, the only way up is down. And if you keep crafting the list and using a terrible disease that's destroying our our country and dividing it even further of whataboutism... And here's what that sounds like. Listen, I'm not saying we're perfect, but have you seen what the other guys are doing? This is okay because of what they're doing. Leave that to people who have no reverence for God. God's people should deal always with righteous judgment. And here's Jesus' judgment. Here's His truth. Here's the absolute truth. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me be super practical. If you're coming to church thinking that this will make you better, and attendance and learning alone will make you acceptable to God, you're wasting your time. The whole point of this is to point you to Jesus, the only Savior of the world, the only sinless man who's ever walked this earth, who took your sins and mine to the cross, And if you understand that, it has a tremendously healing effect on your life because you stand before the cross of Christ guilty, convicted, broken, stained in different ways, yes, than a man and the woman standing beside you. And maybe some of your sins were worse, but everyone has to deal with a perfectly holy and righteous judge, and the only way for anyone in that great crowd of sinners to be saved is to humble himself and do what the publican did, the tax collector did, and say, Jesus, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. The self-righteous man went home bearing all of his sin, the man who was crushed by the weight of his sin, Jesus said, went home justified, righteous, clean, pure. This is why it matters. So don't play the comparison game. There's two bad things that happen when you think that all sins are the same. First of all, it makes you numb to their evil. Recently, Christians have been embarrassed nationwide by very prominent leaders sinning. And in a Me Too era, things that men did in the dark using the name of Christ to justify their own evil intentions are now being brought into the light. And Christians who should have responded to that and called it evil and said that it was wrong said instead, we're all sinners. And that's True. And we only stand together by the grace of Christ, but the fact that we're all sinners does not in any way keep us from the responsibility of calling sin and every kind of sin, sin and unrighteous and wrong. Is this making sense? Are you seeing this work, our way, work its way through our culture? We've lost a tremendous amount of moral credibility because we are unwilling. And if you don't know the stories I'm referring to, God bless you, don't look. It's too discouraging. But when people among us in our own family sin and we say, well, that's not that bad because the other guy and I sin too, no, just call righteousness righteousness and call sin sin. Sin. The fact that we all sin should not make us numb, it should be it should make us hungry and sensitive to the need of a savior. And it won't do me much good to go to the judge before you and say, listen, I I I didn't do nearly as much as the next guy. Have you met these other guys? They're killers. All I do is break into houses. You should let me go. (laughs) Now, what's a good judge gonna do in that situation? He's gonna deal with you as a burglar and deal with the next man as a murderer. He's not going to say, well, only the worst person that appeared before me, only only the murderers go to prison today. All the rest of you are free to go. No, a judge will deal case by case, life by life, sin by sin, crime by crime. The second bad thing that happens when you think all sins are the same is it keeps you from being discerning and pursuing what is right. You just give up your sense of moral judgment and you lose hope, and you don't do what Scripture says. Listen, church, final judgment belongs to God alone, but He has told us to be discerning and to pursue justice. And if that sounds like a liberal slogan to you, may I open the Bible with you and show you some Scriptures? Just a couple, because we're almost out of time that are hidden from our eyes because sometimes certain phrases and certain words become so infected in our hearing that we don't understand and we confuse what God has said compared to what the culture says. What Scripture says is that God alone is the final judge of every human being and He will ultimately do what is right and He'll do it in the right proportion and at the right time. But in the meantime, he, is expects, he expects his children who have been forgiven at the cost of the life of his own son to discern. Not to stand as self-appointed judges and not to condemn sinners, but to certainly discern the difference between right and evil, and everywhere they find evil and sin to pursue justice and righteousness, first in their own hearts and then in all their dealings and to use every bit of influence so that the righteousness and the justice and the mercy of God can all be experienced as long as that believer is here. Scripture, and this is just two sections, says things like this. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. If you ever say to wicked people, that's okay, you're right, Proverbs warns that will lead to a curse. That will lead to entire nations hating such a person because righteousness and justice are being subverted. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. And if you turn we're all sinners into, which is a truth, into, nobody gets the right to say anything about what's right and wrong, our influence, our witness to the world will be completely lost. And too many Christians are unwilling to speak about what's right and wrong because they look at their own sin and they say, how could I ever say that the other person is doing wrong themselves? It's our responsibility. Look at this next passage in Isaiah. God is rebuking His whole nation of Israel, and He's calling them back to His original purpose, which carries forward in the New Testament. It becomes sharper and more focused, in fact, once Jesus arrives. Read this with me. It's our job description. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. You say, that's a lot of work. Yes, it is. You know what it'll take? All of God's family. Some of you have brought justice to the fatherless. There's a family sitting in the back of this church that has brought justice and righteousness and goodness and mercy into the lives of three little children not their own, who look nothing like them, who are clearly, obviously adopted. Why have they done that? Because they've heard the Word of God. Some of you are involved in correcting oppression wherever it may be found. Quite simply, abortion is a scourge on this country. We've exterminated millions and millions of ourselves, much more heavily in minority communities than in the majority culture. There is a plague of fatherless across this country as men walk away from their responsibilities and leave their children to themselves, leave them to mothers and grandmothers. And sons are growing up wild and uncontrollable in their teenage years because there's not a righteous man to get down knee to knee and say, we don't behave like this, we're gentlemen. You don't talk to someone like that. He's weaker than you. You look out for him. You protect him. Precious few are pleading the widow's cause. We've we've left, we've pushed that increasingly over into the hands of the government, which you may have noticed. Not so good, not so efficient, not so caring, not so wise. If you succumb to the foggy thinking that all sin is alike, and consequently no one can cry out for righteousness... No one can act with generosity. No one can be righteously indignant and not appoint themselves as judge, but appoint themselves as what God told them to do, an advocate, a defender, a voice, someone who will love, someone who will serve, someone who will sacrifice to plead for those and defend those who cannot plead and defend for themselves. Then and then alone we've done what God has asked us to do. Here's what 1 Timothy says. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. It's the same idea. We are running from sin, and we are running toward what? Righteousness. Those two verses are linked together. You run from immorality, and you run toward righteousness. Let me close, bring this home to very, three very simple ideas, three essential truths. Number one is this. God is a just judge so no unforgiven sin will go unpunished and no punishment will be excessive. Recently the nation was outraged because a judge deemed that the rape of an unconscious woman merited only 6 months in prison. He was just recalled because people said that's that's unrighteous, that's wicked. He shouldn't be on the bench if this is his judgment and he's gone. God is a just judge. He will never get it wrong. And no sin that Jesus, no, Jesus can forgive any sins, but if people will not come to Him for their forgiveness, no sin will go unpunished, and no punishment that God deals out will be excessive. Secondly, greater knowledge means greater responsibility. I have some serious news for you. It's not bad news, it's serious news now that you've heard this, if you've understood this, you're more accountable walking out of this room than you were before you came in. Make sense? Because some of you really do have the gift of teaching, and you should embrace it, and you should do it reverently. Others of you were shaped by God by scars and stars in your past. In other words, painful things and things that are blessings in your life. You've been given a story. You've been given insight and wisdom and a heart to deal with one area that society has wrecked with sin. And that's your thing. And we as the body of Christ can do a great deal to pursue justice, to give mercy, to act with holiness, to never stand as self-appointed judges to stand as people who are forgiven only by the righteousness of Christ, to live not with perfection but with integrity and humility and point the way forward back to God who alone can forgive sin. And thirdly, and most importantly, the grace of Jesus can cover every sin and every one of us needs Him. If you're feeling guilty and heavy by sin, let me point you to my favorite verse in the Bible and I'm through. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, here's good news, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're making the list and comparing it to your neighbor, you'll never feel the need for your own forgiveness. You'll never agree with God about your sinfulness, which is what it means to confess. You'll never come to Jesus and say, like the tax collector, Be merciful to me, and you'll never be forgiven. When are we forgiven? When we come to Christ and we confess ourselves sinners and we ask Him to be our Savior. How do we stay in fellowship and in step with God when day by day we acknowledge our own sin and we go to Him? Let's pray together. Christian, you're alive in this time. You may not like these days, but in God's wisdom, He's given you life and influence and money and a voice. He's given you gifts in this time. Here's how you are to walk humbly, conscious of your sins every day, bringing them to Jesus for His continued forgiveness so that you can have peace with Him day by day. And then, on the strength of that forgiveness, going out into the world that sin has wrecked, that wrecked you first. And extending yourself in the name of Christ for the sake of righteousness, of mercy, of people hearing the gospel and being saved. If you're not a Christian, if you're not sure you are, if you're trying to figure all this out, you're not really sure where God is in the picture. I've tried with many words to tell you a simple truth. We're all sinners, and Jesus is the only one who can save you. He and He alone lived a perfect life in your place and bore your sins so that you could be forgiven. If you're conscious of that, if that is uncomfortable and painful for you, that's God dealing with you. He's opening up your eyes to that reality. And what you should do now is run to Him and turn yourself in. Agree with Him. And say, God in heaven, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm tearing up my list. I'm not comparing myself to anyone else. I'm talking to you because of my sins. Please, I turn away from them. Please save me. If you do that this morning, take the connection card in your bulletin and let us know. Turn it in in the offering. Drop it in the box at the end. We'd love to help you be sure of your forgiveness and start walking with this great, holy, merciful God. Let's pray, church. If you've been numb to sin, if you've been numb to evil, if favoritism and partiality, like it was in James's church, it's just been something you don't particularly care about. If you've given up because of sin and you've grown angry about sin but done nothing to counteract it, done nothing to speak for truth, talk to your heavenly Father about it. Lord, we surrender these offerings, our lives, our knowledge, we give it to you. Lord, at no point in my lifetime has there been a greater need for righteousness, for judgment to begin in the house of God, for us to be righteous because we walk with you, and then to step forward into the marketplace, into homes, into friendships, and speak truth, and speak holiness, and speak mercy, and love, and grace, and forgiveness, so that people will encounter you and every awful thing that sin has done can be reversed by the good gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Make us, Lord, the body we should be. Activate us. Give us Your energy. Give us Your vision, Your diligence. Help us to love righteousness and love You in Christ's name.